everyone. Welcome to episode 158 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We have a fun episode for you today. Yeah, an extra special episode with two authors that we were able to sit down and talk with in person. And we just had such a wonderful conversation with them that we thought we'd share the whole thing with you all because it's too hard to edit something that was such a fun conversation. Yeah. And they're two besties, just like we're besties. And it just brought out a really fun time. So we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. We got to go to Savoy Bookshop in Westerly, Rhode Island, which is one of our affiliate bookstores. We love them there. It was a Sunday afternoon event with Andrea Wang discussing her book, Watercress. Yeah, so it's a picture book, and she had a wonderful slide, pres- well, slide presentation, that's not the correct <laughs> word anymore, PowerPoint presentation of the book. And so she did a bit of a read-through of the book for kids in the audience and a little bit of biography beforehand. And it was really charming because she read the book and then we were discussing and this whole group of people walked in with more kids. So we all were like, yeah, read the book again. So we got to hear her read it twice, which was a lot of fun and get more details about the background of the book's creation. Yeah. And then both Andrea and Debbie do a lot of school events with their books. And so she was so quick on her feet with kids saying, well, do you like pizza? And then being able to say, I do like pizza, but I didn't like watercress when I was a kid. Just kind of being able to weave back answers to what her book was about. I thought she did it so seamlessly. Yeah, because watercress is a green plant that grows in watery ditches. And as a kid, she didn't like it for a variety of reasons, just the taste of it and other things that you'll find if you read the book. One of the girls in the audience asked, like, what is watercress? Because I don't think it's a very popular thing that people eat a lot from a kid's perspective anyway. Yeah, it's a little bit more esoteric and hard to find, I think, than spinach and arugula and things like that. Right. Yeah. Then we were able to walk across the street to United Theater, which is a newly renovated theater in Westerly. It was funded by the same philanthropist who renovated the bookstore. Yeah. They have theater there. They also have a music school there with music rooms that are soundproof. So they let us use one of their soundproof rooms to record in. And it was just so much fun to sit around a big table with two, well, I was going to say new to us, wonderful people, but Emily actually knew Andrea in grade school. Exactly. Yeah. So we had a really great time and we hope you enjoy the conversation. We were absolutely thrilled to meet up with Andrea Wang and Debbie Michiko Florence in Westerly, Rhode Island, to talk about their latest books. Andrea Wang is the author of four picture books, a middle-grade novel, and seven library series nonfiction titles. Watercrest was awarded the Caldecott Medal, a Newbery Honor, the Asian-slash-Pacific American Award for Literature, a New England Book Award, and a Boston Globehorn Book Honor. We both adore this book, and as transplanted Midwesterners, the landscape depictions make us long for a drive down a dirt road lined by cornfields. The location of Watercress holds a special place for Emily, as the setting is around her childhood hometown, Yellow Springs, where she and Andrea attended grade school together. Debbie Machico Florence is the author of three middle-grade novels, three chapter book series, 17 books total, and co-author of a picture book biography. Her latest middle grade novel, Sweet and Sour, 
is coming out on September 6th. This story is set in another place near and dear to our hearts, Mystic, Connecticut. It even features an artist's rendering of the two main characters eating ice cream in front of Bank Square Books, our affiliate bookstore. We had a great time talking with Andrea and Debbie, and we hope that you enjoy our conversation. So the first question we have for you is, like the mothers in Debbie's Sweet and Sour, they were best friends. We're wondering how you two met. Well, we met at our agency retreat. We um, are represented by the same agency, but different agents. They used to have these summer retreats, and it was my very first one and Andrea's very first one. And we just randomly started talking to each other, right? We did. And our agency had costume parties. And you came dressed as Big Hero 6. Or you were the, the boy in Big Hero 6. I can't even remember who I was. No, the girl. You were um, the girl. Go, what was her name? Go? I don't remember. Oh, I'm embarrassed. I don't remember her name. But yes, I was dressed as one of the characters from Big Hero 6. And I wanted to come dressed like... Like I was going to own the world because it was my first agency retreat and I was feeling somewhat shy. So I came as Tris from the Divergent series. So I had my combat boots on and tattoos and stuff. (laughs) And yeah, we just started talking and we really hit it off from there. We started writing together. Yeah, it was like this immediate connection that doesn't always happen. We joke that that's probably the best thing to come out of our agency, but that's not true. (laughs) That's not true, but one of the best things (laughs) to come out of the agency is to find my soul sister. That's right. And our agents know that we're best friends. Yes. They're they're very happy. (laughs) That's really cool. How did you write over the pandemic when you said you, you write together? Did you do a lot of Zoom things together? We actually did. Well, so when we write together, basically we have done writing retreats. Together, we'd go somewhere to a hotel and like three or four days, we'd write intensely during the day, but we'd take a lunch break and then we'd go out to dinner as a reward. And then we'd read to each other. And um, But during the pandemic, we had to cancel our writing retreat. And we actually had a Zoom, like a virtual retreat. We did. We would set our timers and we would write for a certain amount of time and then we would read to each other what we had written during that time where we would check in um, over text. And it was really nice to get immediate feedback on, you know, whatever you're writing. It's always fun to like, if I think something's funny and Debbie actually laughs, I'm like, okay, that joke worked, you know, (laughs) because you never know when the book gets out there into readers' hands, you're like, it might've fallen flat. It's nice to get the feedback. It is. It is. Yeah. And I, in fact, read Sweet and Sour. That's what I was working on. I read portions of sweet and sour you did yeah you did that's very cool now let's ask another question that came out of sweet and sour and that is the issue of friendships taking work which i really appreciated that being a part of the story that friendships are not just things that don't take effort the moms as emily mentioned are bffs and the young girl in the book and the young boy have grown up together in the summertime And they're learning that. So can you both maybe talk a little bit about that, Debbie, if you want to start talking about this whole issue of friendship? Well, friendships fascinate me. And the number one thing I write about in all my books have to do with friendships and relationships. Because I took friendships for granted in the beginning when I was in elementary school. And um, it wasn't until middle school that when those friendships start shifting, people start 
having different interests or now you're meeting new people because, you know, you're like four or five elementary schools feed into the middle schools. And it was then I started realizing that uh, friendships can be fleeting. You can lose a friend um, over something really minor if you don't take the work. And in fact, the book itself is dedicated to my childhood best friend. We had a similar thing. We've been friends since we were four, but we had a falling out in college and we went for a few years without talking and then uh, we made up. Uh, solely because of her, because I'm very stubborn. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I think now as an adult, I'm very conscious of that. I, I'm going to say that Andrea and I have had a very smooth friendship. She might jump in and say differently. I would not <laughs> say differently. I think it's been effortless, which is one of the things I really appreciate about it. I think for me, I'm not so focused on the theme of friendship as the theme of not belonging and a friendship plays into that. I eventually realized that I really needed to learn how to communicate more in order to make friends because communication was not a given in my family. And so I really had to learn to put myself out there and and make myself vulnerable in order to make friends. And and that was a tough lesson to learn. Yeah, especially as adults, right? Because I've moved so many times. I've moved eight times in 16 years as an adult. And having to make friends at this age is so hard because people have their established groups or whatever it is. So I really appreciated the agency retreat because we did. We met a lot of people and a lot of those people are friends. But again, you know, Andrea and I gravitated toward each other. We really love each other's writing. And if I may just interject, um, when Andrea wrote Watercress, and she was writing drafts of it and revising, uh, she had sent me a copy of it. She goes, I don't know what else to do with this. Can you tell me? Can you give me some critiques or feedback? And I read it and, of course, burst into tears. And I sent it back to her. I said, what are you doing? Send this to, to your agent. It's ready. So I love being able to say, like, I've gotten early peeks into all of Andrea's books, and she has done the same with mine. <laughs> And without Debbie's encouragement, who knows, it might still be sitting in a folder on my hard drive, you know. Wow. And that, that's amazing to think that. I mean, the book just won the Caldecott, Newberry. Newberry Honor. Newberry Honor. You know, and that is the power of friendship right there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm so it, proud it, of her, yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm so thrilled well, for friendship her. gives us the courage to do things, yes, right? Right, definitely. and I think the effortlessness often comes from, of course, life experience. You're coming to this friendship later in life maybe, but also feeling safe to be vulnerable yeah. And to share of yourself with someone. Yes. And then to have a friend that pushes a little bit, like, get this off. Put it, <laughs> put it out there in the world. I'm sure that's helpful as a writer. Because one of the things that I find fascinating about writing is, in a certain way, it could never be done. I mean, you could always edit. You could always change, add a character, take it further. So we're curious about how you became writers. Was that something that you set off to do? Well... It's funny because I still have the handmade books that I, I made in third or fourth grade. And um, in the back of one of them, I wrote my first author bio. And it says that I want to be a writer when I grow up. Um, and I also remember another incident, uh, not incident, but event where our class wrote poems. And I don't know if you remember this, Emily, but they were all published in the Yellow Springs newspaper on the back page, like it took up an entire page, our entire class and our poems and our photos. And I saw that and I was like, 
I've made it. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I want to do. I mean, life took turns and detours, but yeah. So that's how I came to writing. When my kids were born, I finally came back around to it. I love this because I'm learning things about Andrea since we came to our friendship later. I don't know everything about her childhood. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. (laughs) Um, I did not know I wanted to be a writer when I was young. I love to read, and I've been writing stories since I could write words. In fact, when I go to school visits, I show my very one of my early stories that I wrote when I was six years old and illustrated. Um, but I didn't really connect that that could be a real job. So I continued writing stories all through school. In high school, I'd get to class early and I'd write short stories, but I'd never show them to anybody. They were only for me. And so when it was time to decide what to do and I went to college, I you know, didn't go into like, I'm going to be an author. So it wasn't until I married my husband and we had to move to Mexico City that, uh, and I couldn't take my job with me. I was an educator at a zoo that I thought, oh, you know, I really love writing and now I know that's a job. And that was when I decided I was going to pursue writing as a career. Oh, educator at a zoo. I just got a hint. So sweet and sour, (laughs) Debbie's lovely middle grade book. There's so much nature and obviously the love of birds, That does that come from you? Yes. So I have a degree in zoology and my main interest was in birds and I was a raptor rehabilitator. Mm. So I volunteered and took care of orphaned and injured raptors, birds of prey, owls, hawks, eagles. Um, so all of that, a lot of that came into play in this book and it was fun. It was fun to be able to talk about things that I knew about and had to go back and research because it's been a while. (laughs) Being in Connecticut, I appreciated all the nature that's specific to this area, like the Fisher cats. Something that's not specific is like the screech owl, which I Googled to hear what they sounded like. And my two dogs were laying around me as I was doing that. And they both like perked up like, Like, do I have to like, you know, duck because something's coming at me? Um, But that was really beautiful. And I love the way you incorporated that into the to the character, because it just it natural. It seemed natural. Oh, and thank you. A really important part of her and and just setting the story. Yeah, it's um, set in Mystic, Connecticut, which is almost a bird sanctuary. I mean, yes. with the marshes we have here, it's it really brings in the birds. Yeah, I I do have a pond in front of our house, so all the the egrets and the great blue heron. And just this morning, my husband and I watched an osprey catch a fish out of the, the pond. So yes, I love back. it. Yes. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't live around here, the osprey come and go. And it's a big thing. Like, you know, people have it on market on their calendars because they typically come almost the exact same day every year and leave. And they have just returned. Yes. So happy. <laughs> Spring it is, is so cool. Yeah. And Debbie, you should tell everybody what you call your office. Oh, my writing studio is called The Word Nest. Oh, <laughs> which I love. I love that. <laughs> That's perfect. And um, if you follow Debbie on social media, also she recently did a big oh. moving around of all of her books and reorganizing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I pulled out 17 bankers' boxes of books. There was no way I was ever going to be able to get rid of those books, so I told myself that I could keep them all. I I didn't want to decide what I was going to give away or donate. Every single one of those books is precious to me. So I told myself I just had to box them up and move them into the house because I needed more shelf space because I'm never going to stop buying books. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that was fun. And so, Andrea, with your book, Nature Plays a Huge Part, 
as well with the watercress. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the the memory and how your book came to be? Sure. So watercress is based on a memory of my parents making my older brother and I pick watercress by the side of the road. And I think in reality, we did it several times, um, probably more than I wanted to. Um, the first time, though, is what I write about in the book and how it made me feel like just mortified by my family and how different we were because we did grow up in rural Ohio. We were one of two Chinese-American families in Yellow Springs that I remember. Um, I was the only Asian-American kid in my entire grade until we moved away when I was 13. So I definitely was not going to go around telling people at school, like, I just ate watercress out of a ditch by the side of the road. It was awesome. It was not awesome. Um, and, you know, uh, we did not, you know, have all the electronic toys that we do today. And so we spent a lot of time outside. And, you know, one of my favorite places to visit was Glen Helen Nature Preserve. And we even had summer camps there that I think our schools went and took us on field trips there. And they had a wonderful welcome center where we could watch, you know, the bees in the beehive. It was encased in glass so we could look for the queen bee. So I really got my um, start being interested in nature there. And, you know, nature was all around us. You really couldn't avoid it living out in the Ohio countryside. My mother also picked a lot of other things. She would come home with ginkgo nuts. I don't know where she found those. But that's when we all discovered as a family that ginkgo nuts give off butyric acid, (laughs) which can severely irritate your skin. My mother was covered like her entire arms up to her armpits was just a mass of hives. And she had to eventually go. She had a horrible reaction. She had to go to the doctor and get steroids. And we were just like, give up the ginkgo nuts, mom. (laughs) But it was, again, it wasn't something you could find in the grocery store. And it was very evocative of her childhood in China, you know, in much the same way that watercress was. So she donned those, you know, yellow rubber gloves and she would sit there every night in front of the TV, just trying to pull the fruit from around the ginkgo nuts. She ate every single nut, my gosh. <laughs> you know, like she, she was determined. <laughs> so, she, she worked for those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So nature and food are sort of inextricably, you know, tied together for me. So we um, we are proud middle-agers here at the Book Cougars. <laughs> we don't necessarily need to out you two, but what, why do you think you could write your book, Watercrest, now? I... It's taken me eight years to write it. it. It took me a very long time to figure out the heart of the story. So when I first wrote it, it was a personal essay meant for adults. And you know how a personal essay is supposed to have this like take-home point at the end where you learned something and how you're going to apply it to your life in the future or whatever. The format is, and I didn't have that. I just had no idea why I kept coming back to this memory. And I kept trying to work on it over the, you know, the succeeding years, it really wasn't until after I had lost both my parents that I was trying to write down memories about them. And I took the manuscript out again and was working on it. And I was getting my MFA in creative writing for children at the same time. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm a kid in this story. Maybe I should rewrite it as a picture book. And I rewrote it as a picture book and it still really wasn't working. I didn't really have an ending. I didn't really, it was like, 
a happy story about picking watercress when in actuality I really had to sit with my emotions. And I think it took that level of maturity, shall we say, <laughs> of certain age, um, to really be able to go back and, and allow myself to be really vulnerable and feel all those feelings again. So I sat there and just cried my way through writing this version that became the book. When I was done, I was like, I think I wrote a journal entry or like a confessional. And this could never be a picture book. Debbie, what do you think? I'm going <laughs> to send it to you because, you know, I can't. I'm too close to it. So, yeah. I and it was just beautiful <laughs> and so emotional. I actually read it to my husband. I'm like, Andrew thinks this isn't ready. Listen to this. <laughs> He's not in the business, but he was also very moved. And um, yeah, it took me two seconds to send it back to him. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Tell me what to do. <laughs> it's ready. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it came out, I think, at a time that society needed it. Not that I could ever have anticipated that. But I'm I'm glad that it's part of the conversation now. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, I'd love to ask a question about writing picture books um, because you have a, an illustrator that you worked with and we do want to find out more about that and the techniques that you mentioned during story time. But what? how do you write a picture book? Do you have sketches that you've written out or is it all just words when you're writing a picture book? What is the process for you? Um, well, I think every picture book author has a different process. So the process for me um, usually begins with a character and an idea. And um, in this case, the character is me. The idea was I needed to write about this memory. And I think what finally made it work was, you know, not only just being open and vulnerable and completely honest about how I felt as a kid, but you, as a writer, the text needs to be like spare enough that the pictures are necessary too. It's an equal balance, I think, in the best picture books. I mean, you could read them separately, the text or the pictures, but they really um, give a depth to each other. You know, they they make it more layered and nuanced, right? Like I think. In the book, I don't want to give any spoilers, but there's a particularly emotional scene at the end where my text does not spell out what happens. And you can see it in the illustrations, but if you're old enough to to be able to handle that kind of content, like I didn't want my text to upset a much younger child. Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be too obvious. Those are really stunning illustrations there too, just with the detail it's yeah. in the background to evoke feeling. Yeah. yeah. Jason Chan did an amazing job with all of the feelings yeah. and the flashbacks in yeah. the book. It's frameable, you know, mm -hmm. like the oh. especially the image. I love the beginning one with, you know, they're on the dirt road and this red car mm -hmm. and these, you know, the tall cornfield. It's just, I, I'm from Illinois, so I'm very familiar with cornfields, even though I grew up in the city and spent a lot of time in Nebraska. So, yeah. you know, for me, that just evoked a lot of memories, just seeing such a stunning picture of the Midwest. Yeah. 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 Jason actually spent like a week, he says, out there painting the cornfields of Vermont, studying it. The amount of research he did for this book is astronomical. I mean, yeah, I, 
I looked at old photos and sat with my memories and he like went all <laughs> over the place and, you know, actually went to the Yanjing Library at Harvard to look up to see what the architecture of the Chinese houses in that time period that, you know, I mean, just, it's well, amazing. It's kind of his version of writing, right? You know, I mean, he has to study to know what to, what to paint. Yes. Yeah. And he just wants everything to be as accurate as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that for Andrea, you might want to talk about how different this process was because mm-hmm. usually the author and the illustrator are kept pretty separate. Mm-hmm. And this, I think part of the reason why this book is so beautiful and evocative is that they really did work as a team. That's right. Thanks, Debbie. We did. Um, and as you say, we typically, the artist and the author are kept at arm's length from each other. Um, just so I think because the author can impose their ideas on the artist if they were allowed closer contact. And and the artist has their own vision, and it's difficult to say to the author, like, no, no, I, th- I see it this way. But when Neil Porter, our editor, approached Jason, I think he was initially a little bit hesitant because he felt the weight of responsibility of illustrating essentially my life story. And he had never done that before. But Neil had the forethought to introduce us to each other at a conference that we were both at, and we talked, and um, I basically just blabbered on about my entire life story and offered to send him photos, and and over the course of the next two years, I sent him old photos. Uh, We talked on the phone whenever he had a question, but I definitely was very careful to let him approach me because I'm not a visual artist. I, you know, I work with words and I wanted him to express his own vision. And it's nothing like I expected and so much better than I ever thought it could be, you know. I was so excited when he won the Caldecott. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And so can you speak a little bit about his process? You mentioned when we were at Storytime that he incorporated two different traditions of painting. Right. He was trained in the Western tradition of watercolor painting. So if you look at his previous work, it's all incredibly detailed. He writes mostly science nonfiction Mm. books, and they're gorgeous. You know, approaching this, our editor wanted him to try maybe a different medium. And he, I think, experimented with pastels for a while because he'd been wanting to try that. And he really liked the way it looked, but they were really smudgy and he sort of went back and forth and he finally settled back into watercolor and he picked up his, he does have a set of Chinese brushes and he was thinking how iconic the Chinese brush is because it's used for handwriting as well as for painting. I think he had actually been to China and studied a little bit there as well. And he really liked how the soft washes of the landscape paintings, uh, the Chinese landscape paintings evoked, you know, like sort of hazy memories or, you know, the mist is really soft. And and he felt that that would be good for the flashback scenes in Watercress. And I think that's just brilliant because when I wrote those flashback scenes, I really even wasn't thinking about the art. And then when it was done, I was like, I have no idea how you would convey that, but he did it. And so, yeah, it's it's just really interesting to see the blend of the East and the West. And, and he came up with the whole cornfields um, as they go into what we call the gutter of the book between the pages. It 
morphs into the bamboo of China in the flashbacks. It's just I love that. brilliant. So much. Yeah. 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 And and when you say frameable, I have two of his um, original paintings. So wow. I'm so excited to hang them in my house. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Debbie, in Sweet and Sour, you have like middle school lingo and humor and hip phrases. I mean, Chris and I were talking about how we had to Google stuff as yeah. we were reading it. That how do you bias? Like, <laughs> yeah, somebody's my bias, and it's like, what does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> how do you keep in touch with your inner middle schooler? Um, well, I feel like emotionally, I am still very much between the ages of ten and fourteen. Um, people often ask me, "Why do you write uh, for this audience?" And when I close my eyes. Most of my big emotional epiphanies and memories all come from my middle school years. So I love writing from that point of view. I will say that I started off trying to write YA. I wanted to be a YA author. And the rejections I was getting, among other things that editor said, was that your voice is younger. You are not, you don't sound like a teenager. And so it took me, I'm very stubborn, as I mentioned, it took me a long time, like almost 10 years until I decided to try and write middle grade. And I will admit this, the reason why I wanted to write YA is that not only do I love writing about friendships, but I also love writing about that first crush or the first romance. And um, at that time, you really didn't see that in middle grade. And I'm thrilled that now I can write these stories for middle grade readers and, you know, it's friendship and first crush or something like something appropriate. So I feel like in my heart, I'm still very connected to that age. As for the lingo, um, I don't know. Um, the word bias actually is um, specific to the fans of BTS, a K-pop group, the fan base called ARMY. And when someone asks, who's your bias? They mean, who's your favorite? Um, who do you gravitate toward? And all of that I learned from my daughter. So she is the one who introduced BTS to me. And I asked her a lot of questions. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to make my main character, you know, be ARMY. And, you know, you have to really sink in. So I'd listen to the music and I'd watch the music videos and their um, little video shows. And uh, yeah, now I am full-fledged ARMY. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, those words came because I was sunk into that. Um, I, I do have um, very important team members over at my publishing house at Scholastic who are much younger than I am, um, like copy editors or assistants. And um, so sometimes I'll say something and I'll get a note that this isn't something that young people say anymore. So if not for the wonderful, my wonderful editor, Jenny, and the team over there, um, you know, I probably would say thing that wasn't quite right. Takes a village. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so th this might be too personal, but um, your daughter's reaction to all of this, does she roll her eyes or is she into it with you? Oh, she's into it. She has always been very, so she's an adult now, but she has, from the time she was eight years old, has been extremely supportive. She was the one who told me, Mommy, if you don't write first thing in the morning, you're crabby. So you write, <laughs> and she's an artist, so she would go do her artwork, and then we'd have a nice day for the rest of the time. And, you know, when I'd get rejections, she would like, 
they don't know what they're talking about. And <laughs> yeah, so when I told her, when I sold my very first book back in 2015, which was a chapter book, and I called to tell her, she was genuinely moved and she was so happy and so proud of me. And she has read all my books and is very supportive. And when I ask her questions, like when I started asking her questions about BTS, very happy to help out. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe awesome we should sauce. say awesome sauce. Awesome yeah. sauce. <laughs> <laughs> we want to talk about, um, you know, what's been happening in this country with anti-Asian sentiment. And Andrea, you mentioned Watercrest is part of the conversation now, which is something to be really proud of. Thank you for writing it. Um, how do you feel about it? I mean, both as authors and as human beings and as people who go out and talk to schools, you know, how's it affecting your life? Well, I mean, I think the most obvious answer is we I feel awful about it, right? I mean, uh, it is hard um, to watch racism happening so blatantly. And, you know, I've been subject to microaggressions my entire life. And part of the reason why I was hesitant to put watercress out in the world is because it made me vulnerable and exposed in a, in a way I would never have done as a child. And, you know, I mean, if it helps that one child feel seen and understood, then I feel like I've, I've done something worthwhile. And I just yeah, I really hope that the takeaway message for people who aren't Asian American in reading my books that they just see the common humanity that we all share. And I think that that's more important than my vulnerability. But as far as the anti-Asian sentiment, I mean, obviously, I wish it would stop. I think it's ridiculous and awful. And, you know, I just want people to sort of, what, wake up and be kind. Yes. (laughs) You know, and communicate, right? We come back to communication. It's... And basically see the humanity. We are all human. We have the same emotions, the physical differences or the, you know, how we were brought up. We all are different in all different ways. But deep at the core, we are all the same. And, you know, just like Andrea said, the the books that I write, my characters are Japanese American. I grew up in Los Angeles at a time where um, I had a very large Japanese-American community and a very large, diverse friend group. And I was very aware that I was a Japanese-American person. And, um, you know, I celebrated different holidays or I went to Japanese school. But it wasn't until I moved out of California to the Midwest, in fact, that I realized that I was different, that people looked at me and saw me differently or, you know, microaggressions, you know, have a complete stranger asked me how long I've been in the country, like uh, all my life, um, where you speak English really well. I'd better. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think in my books, I'm hoping that young people who read it, first off, that Asian American kids will see themselves in the, these books. And second off, everyone will see that it doesn't matter um, that my characters are Japanese American and they might eat different food or have different phrases, but they also have friendship problems or their parents are getting divorced or, you know, they have a crush on that person over there. And that we all feel the same way. We all react the same way. And that to me is the most important. Like Andrea said, of course, this anti-Asian 
hate is just horrible. And for the very first time that I can remember, I feel unsafe. Nothing has happened to me here, but I don't go out a whole lot. I used to run by myself. And um, I don't run outside anymore. I run at home on a treadmill because I am nervous of something happening or somebody saying something or doing something. Because we hear stories all the time. Our Asian American friends will tell us people say things or do things. Um, Friends of mine in New York City don't feel safe riding the subway by themselves. And it breaks my heart. And I just don't understand how people who hate so much, I mean, how would you like to walk around with all that ugly feeling inside of you i would much rather see the good in people right yeah yeah i mean if you have the energy to to expend all of this you know time and effort like do something good with it right exactly Mm -hmm. and i mean i think that i grew up in a very rural very white community and i have never felt safe and so i think i took a lot of that into my writing with me and, you know, all of my books, my trade books, are about Asian Americans or Asians. And, yeah, we are just like everybody else. I mean, I tell my children who are in college, I'm like, race is a construct. You know, I <laughs> it's just another way people have used to divide us. And, mm-hmm. and we are all the same species. And, you know, um, every bad thing that they think about Asians can be applied to other races and other peoples and it's you know there's so many bigger things to tackle right Mm -hmm. let's just move past this one right yeah yeah Yeah. thank you both for speaking to that and i know debbie in your book you know one of the white characters says something that's racist at one point and she catches herself you know and she's like oh geez that was racist i'm sorry and you know i appreciate that and that it gives younger readers an understanding that you can be friends with somebody and say things that you don't realize, but that, you know, we need to be aware of our language with each other too, so that people do feel comfortable and that people do keep growing and learning. I'm still learning. I will say things or catch myself saying things. And fortunately I have kind friends who will call me in. Um, So yes, we're all learning. And I think it's important for kids to realize it's okay to make a mistake because then you can correct yourself and grow and learn from that. Even when you're stubborn, right, Debbie? Even when I'm stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also good to speak up. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, mm-hmm. in my middle grade novel, The Many Meanings of Melon, um, the boy that she's making friends with calls her exotic. Mm-hmm. And they have a very long conversation about why that's not okay and how it makes her feel. And yeah, it's just a matter of, of speaking up and communicating and then being on the other side willing to change. Yeah, I love that both of um, us talk about that in our novels because we have both probably grown up thinking or being taught, you mm-hmm. know, don't make waves, you know, no conflict, just accept it and move along. And right. it's taking me till now mm-hmm. to just start speaking up. And yeah, my first middle grade novel that Keep It Together, Keiko Carter, her whole journey is learning to speak up for herself. Mm -hmm. And um, that's very much my journey. And it's great to have a friend who's an Asian American author, because we'll bounce ideas off of each other, like, did I go too far with this scene? Mm -hmm. And the other one will say, no, no, it's great. You got to keep it in, because how else are we going to 
get our our messages across. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You both do school visits. Mm-hmm. Do kids ask you questions? I'll I'll be really clear. Like, do white kids ask you questions about how they can be better allies? Does that ever come up? That has not no, come up. That okay. has not. I will tell you though that pre-pandemic. N- I didn't have middle grade novels. Mm. So I was going around to schools talking about my Jasmine Taguchi chapter books, which is about a Japanese American girl. And there are threads of Japanese American culture in each book. And early on, back in 2012, when I was submitting this book for publication, I did get a rejection letter that basically said, um, we love this idea of um, a girl celebrating her Japanese culture. However, we feel like our chapter book lines are a lot, um, uh, have a wider appeal. And uh-huh. so we cannot accept this book for publications. And we all know what that meant, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I was devastated because I didn't want to write you know, a generic book about a girl who makes cupcakes. I really wanted to talk about mochi making. And it took until We Need Diverse Books um, forming in 2014 and getting the word out that, you know, it's important for all voices to be heard and all stories to be heard, um, that I submitted this book and it was picked up by FSG, my editor, Grace Kendall, and I was able to publish it. And you know what? It wasn't only Japanese American kids who fell in love with Jasmine. It's not only, and it's not only girls who want to read this book. So um, they have an interest and an understanding and want to. Yeah, it goes back to what we were talking about that the kids relate right. to the characters and yeah. their emotional journey, not, right. not how they're different. It's typically the adults that get in the way. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I have also not heard from um, white students. Um, asking about racism or aggression, um, microaggressions. I have heard from Asian American students who just comment that, you know, they feel seen and this really, they've had similar experiences and now they can put a name to what that is. And one of the wonderful things about Watercress is that both Jason and I have been hearing from readers of all backgrounds and all races about how you know, they had to pick X, Y, or Z from the the wild and eat it, or, you know, their parents are immigrants or their ancestors are immigrants. And it's great. They are able to see as children beyond the race of the character to the universal truths in the book, right? And I was blown away because a teacher tweeted that she had read Watercrest to her second grade class. So we're talking seven-year-olds. And one boy came up to her afterwards and he said, I really like that book. It's about being grateful for what you have and being proud of who you are. And we were like, wow, (laughs) that is a brilliant kid. I mean, I don't know that I would have put it as succinctly as he did. So it's, yeah, they're just able to cut right to it. Yeah, we don't give kids enough credit sometimes as adults. Yeah, Yeah. That'll be the blurb on the paperback. That's right. Yeah. That would be a great blurb. Yeah, yeah for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, well, I do agree. Like Emily said, I think the adults get in the way and the adults cause, you know, so much twisting of children's love and appreciation for all the stories that they hear when they're kids. Well, we always like to ask our author guests, if you're up for it, what are you working on next? Oh. <laughs> I was afraid. Oh, no, what are they <laughs> um, I am, oh, my goodness. I am working on the next middle grade novel coming out 
next year. It's called This Is How I Roll, uh, about a Japanese-American 12-year-old whose father is a famous sushi chef, and she wants to be like him, and she feels like he's discouraging her. So she meets a boy, and together they start this kind of YouTube video cooking tutorial, but she's keeping it a secret, and we all know what happens when you keep secrets. (laughs) Uh, So things will kind of might be blowing up. So that's coming out, and I have four more Jasmine Taguchi books coming out starting this September. Four. Yeah. Wow. That's Exciting. Awesome. Yay. Yeah. Yay. Now, not to listeners know, I always like to talk about food. So, not <laughs> to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but classically, sushi chefs are men, right? Yeah. So, is that part of why the father is discouraging her? I don't want to give away too much, but that's what she believes that she's being discouraged, maybe because she's. A girl. Mm, yes. The plot thickens. Yes. I can't wait. <laughs> what about you, Andrea? My next picture book actually comes out in May um, this year, May 17th. It's called Luli and the Language of Tea. And in true to form, it is about both um, being an immigrant and food <laughs> or a beverage in this case. Um, I Somewhere along the way, I had heard that the word for tea is very similar in, in many languages. And so I set out to figure out if that was true. And it is because they derive from the Chinese word for tea. Was, tea was originated in China, at least the tea from the tea plant. And as uh, tea was traded around the world, they took the Chinese word in different dialects. And so it morphed from cha to che to chai or, you know, to tay to tea. And so it seemed like this big game of telephone to me. <laughs> um, so I wrote a, a, a picture book about a group of immigrant children whose parents are all attending ESL at the community center. And they're in the playroom next door and they don't speak each other's languages until a little girl named Luli decides to hand out tea and brings them all together. So um, that's illustrated by Haewon Yum. Uh, she's from South Korea and it's just adorable, you know, colored pencil illustrations. And I'm also working on my next middle grade novel, which comes out probably in 2024. And that doesn't have a title yet, but it is loosely based or set in a Chinese heritage camp that my uh, children attended when they were young. And I just loved this camp where all the kids are Chinese American and from all different walks of life, your, you know, backgrounds. And they get together for a week in the summer. They have a great time. They do all sorts of fun cultural and non-cultural activities. And basically, like Debbie was saying, you know, act like normal, not normal, but you know what I mean? Regular. Act like regular kids. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, so it's sort of addressing the idea of what it means to be Asian and what it means to be Asian enough. Cause we, I think as Asian Americans all struggle with this, right? Like, do you speak your heritage language? Or if you don't know all the cultural rituals, are you still, you know, Chinese enough? And when I went back to visit China to see my in-laws in Shanghai, I definitely had points where I, I felt like I do not know how to be Chinese enough. And so uh, it's it's loosely about that. And I'm also working on two picture book biographies, um, also about like Chinese Americans in history that, um, you know, aren't really covered in the school curriculums that we don't know about. So I like bringing to light the, the hidden histories. 
All right, one more question, at least for me. Um, I always love to find out, like, how do writers write? Do you have a favorite pen pencil? Do you have a computer program that you love? Debbie, if you want to start answering that question, if you're up for it. Oh, um, I do not write by hand because my writing is so messy that I would not be able to read it. Sometimes I'll scribble a note and be sad because I'll think it's brilliant <laughs> and then I won't be able to read it. So <laughs> I I write on my laptop. I use Scrivener. Oh, cool. And um, yeah, I will take a, a, an occasional note, but um, all my writing is done on the laptop in silence. We were talking about this earlier. I will listen to playlists for each of my projects before I sit down to write to get me in the mood. Uh, but once I'm writing, I need complete silence. And Debbie's very diligent. She write, tries to write every day. And I'm more... Well, but we hear that's because she gets crabby if she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Fortunately, she's two hours ahead of me in time zone. So usually by the first time we talk each day, she's not crabby anymore. <laughs> um, I don't know that I have a process. I let ideas marinate for a long time and I'll run over sentences in my head and, you know, hop out of the shower and try and write them down. I love notebooks. I have a lot of notebooks. And, you know, I'll start a new notebook for every project and I'll write down lines as they come to me, characters as they come to me, scenes that I think might be interesting. And when, if I'm doing research, because I like to do a lot of research for my books, I'll, I'll take notes on whatever book it is that I'm reading and, and re- using for research. And I do like to use Scrivener. Um, I will do most of my writing in that you know, like fast drafting or, but the first draft, I wouldn't call it fast. The first draft takes me forever. <laughs> I hate writing the first draft. I'm much better at revision. Same. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it's kind of like, then I, I look through my notebooks or I'll draw a plot arc or something. I find lots of excuses to do more research and to draw diagrams instead of actually do writing the first draft. I do want to say we we're on opposite spectrums mm-hmm. when it comes to deadlines mm-hmm. uh, and we know ourselves very well <laughs> am i outing terrible. you am i not supposed to talk about this <laughs> no. are our are, are editors going to listen to these <laughs> it's okay i've blown past many a deadline <laughs> well that's not even what i was going to say though but i'm the kind of person who the closer i get to my deadline oh the more panicked i get you've outed yourself yeah but the more the more panicked i get and i get so anxious that i freeze up and I won't be able to work at all. So when I know what my deadline is, I usually get my work done at least a day before. Whereas Andrea is really good at writing really well close to her deadline. And she writes brilliantly. And I don't want to say, I wasn't going to say the whole blowing past your deadline thing. I was just going to say she's really good at writing under pressure in that way. And she writes beautifully. Like her first drafts, even though she says she hates first drafts, her first drafts are beautiful because she does let sentences marinate and she thinks about it. Whereas I basically have an idea and I vomit it out. And it is very ugly. Um, I don't know that I've shared first drafts with anybody because it is truly horrible. And then the draft after that is my real first draft. But because Andrea is more mindful, I feel like her first drafts are more beautiful. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Um, There's a reason why she's my best friend, right? Um, (laughs) I cannot. I know there's writing advice that says, if you don't know the name of a character, just put, you know, in parentheses, 
like Henry or whatever, just write anything in and move on. And I cannot for the life of me do that. I can't just move on, um, especially with names. Like every name has a meaning for me and I got to like research it to death. Um, so I tend to write a sentence and I'll try writing the next sentence, but I'll think, oh, this word would sound much better in that previous sentence. Or I have thesaurus.com open. I should really just look and see if this verb is the exact right verb that I want. And so it takes me a very long time. But then I guess it results in fewer revisions later or fewer drafts later. That's the hope, at least. Um, and I do really love an all-nighter. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> Ever since college. I don't know. It's just, I, I'm like, yeah, it's the middle of the night. It's so quiet. No one's awake. I can totally focus. Mm-hmm. Let's just get this done. Yeah. Yeah. I would not be coherent. <laughs> I can never, I, even in college, I wasn't the kind of person Same who could pull way. an yeah. all-nighter. Yeah. I, I'm an early riser. And, yeah, and by 2 o'clock, owl. I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, after the, the manuscript is submitted, I'm definitely lying on the sofa for a week straight. But, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. That was wonderful to hear from both of you. <laughs> this has been so much fun. Yes. Yeah, thank you. This was a blast. I was thinking to myself, I wish all my podcasts that I do, I got to do with Andrea. <laughs> I know, me too. I was thinking the same thing. And with, you know, childhood friends like Emily. Oh, that's who, so awesome. You know, was in our second slash third grade class yeah. together. Yeah. Well, and I just think that it's so, you know, friendship as as we started talking about is really important. And Chris and I marvel that we also became friends late in life around a love of books. And so I think by talking to the two of you and listeners are used to listening to our voices, you know, it's, it's can happen. You can have friendships later in life that are really important and And deep. deep. Yeah. 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 So it's so nice to meet you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.